Hey everyone, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. And today we are thrilled to be chatting with poet, rapper, actor, filmmaker, and showrunner Raphael Casal. Raphael is best known for Blind Spotting, a feature film turned TV show that he co-created with his longtime creative partner, David Diggs. His work explores the complicated social dynamics of urban life in the 21st century, particularly in Oakland, where he grew up. We're going to be chatting with Raphael about the season two premiere of the award-winning show Blind Spotting, which dropped last Friday. And uh, amazing. We love it. We're going to talk so much about Woo-hoo. it. We're excited. But before we get into that, we're going to first welcome him to the show. So welcome to The Screenwriting Life. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is so cool. We're going to talk shop about writing. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you've also, I hope, or, or will you join us? We always start the show with what we call adventures in screenwriting or how our week was and how our week of writing went and the ups and downs of the week, uh, getting a little bit real. Uh, if you'll join us, that would be yeah. fun. Great. Uh, we'll it. let Lorian go first. Uh, Lorian, how was your week? It's good. So this week, I'm really trying to figure out how to manage my stress in healthier ways, right? A lot of personal life stress, work stress, potential writer strike stress, health insurance, like all these big, big things. Um, And uh, I realized that the only way I'm going to deal with all this bullshit is to write into it. And I'm scared because I wear sort of all of my stress and my warrior armor, like it's like an armor, like to keep myself protected from myself, right? If I'm like so busy and so stressed, then I don't ever have to feel vulnerable or pain. And that is, but the only way I can really deal with this stuff, it's, you know, I have to stop eating chips and uh, yelling at my husband. I, I need to write into it. I need to dive face first body into the lava and like wrestle the demons and swim around with it and hopefully get into that writer zone because that's really the only place I ever really find true peace and calm. And mm. I don't know why. Well, I do know why, because I'm terrified of what I'm going to find in there, right? Because I write to tell myself the truth, but it's like, I'm so stressed and distracted by everything going on that I don't even know what I want to talk about yet. So I just have to throw myself in there, trusting that I'll catch myself on the other side. And it's making me emotional because <laughs> I know I have to do this and I'm terrified. So that's what I'm thinking about this week. All great. <laughs> Raphael, how was your week? <laughs> oh, I have to follow that. <laughs> um, not like that. <laughs> um, but I've had those weeks. I know them very, very well. Um, this week, I um, I'm always, you know, always, I, I'm one of those writers that like, I have to work on a bunch of scripts at once. I can't, I can't do one at a time. Um, and so they always kind of come to fruition in this weird sort of stacked way. And this, this week was, I'd sent a, a screenplay off to uh, producing partners of mine who I trust for notes. Um, I always have to like mentally prepare for their notes, not because they aren't amazing notes, but because like they don't say anything nice first. <laughs> they go right into oh, like, God, all right, we read it. Here's what we think, you know, and here come the things that can make it better. At least they read it. At least they read it. <laughs> At least they read it, which is like the, the gift of all the gift of all gifts. The fact that there's even people to send it to. I mean, most of us have no one to objectively read our work. Um, so I I um, appreciate them with an with an unbelievable amount of sort of love and care. But I also like have to put my armor on and go. This is how they know. This is how they get you to be, you know, to write something that you would consider to be not just not just good or not just a strong first draft, but you know, to get to the other side of. Um, uh, of the divide of meh <laughs> to get to great and like get all your blinders off. Um, and so I always look at it as a confirmation moment when they say something that I was also w- worried about wasn't landing. And I take those as my big wins and I go, oh, good. I felt that. I felt that. Look, my radar works. I felt that too. I felt that too. And then really star the things where I'm like, wow, I wasn't even paying attention to that. Um, or that my, um, there are things I realize as a writer that are my own inclinations to write my own politics that bleed out of everything. And they're really loud for other people, but they're just my inner monologue for me. And so I don't notice when they play um, very visibly in a script. And so notes to me are always this massive self-awareness process of the way in which like I am 
I'm subconsciously always imprinting on my own writing. And so I felt like I had a therapy session yesterday <laughs> where I found out like where my brain naturally is going. And they're like, well, you're, the screenplay is clearly about this and clearly about this. And I'm sitting there going like, I guess that is where I'm at <laughs> right now in my life. Um, so I, I think I'm sort of still reeling from the satisfaction that it wasn't, this is terrible and you need to restructure everything. It was like this, there, there is a skeleton of a great thing here here are the ways to make it stronger, but also kind of feel like I looked in the mirror for the first time in a year because I haven't had anyone read anything that long. Um, a lot of episodic stuff, but nothing that was like 120 you know, some odd pages that feels like one complete thought. And you're reminded every time you do that how vulnerable it is to let somebody into something that you've just been like incubating and thinking about and playing with sort of in secret, like a, you know, like a maniacal, you know, person on your own. Um, and so I think today is like my, I feel like I'm waking up from like drinking too much the day before. I'm like, okay, what happened yesterday? What was good about it? What did I sort of regret saying and doing? No <laughs> hangover. I, no hangover. Yeah. And how do I <laughs> give myself a week to recover and then, you know, go in and, and, treat it like it was somebody else's script and it's just my job to fix it. So what do you do in the space between when you click send and when you actually get the notes call? What is that process like for you? Uh, the, the first few minutes is like a mantra about like getting comfortable with how long it's going to take for them to read it and to not expect like the urgency with which you sent it to be reacted to in any sort of similar form whatsoever. Um, and then I think a lot about what I love about it and what's non-negotiable for me and what feedback I'm really open to and what feedback I'm not. I think sometimes we're just like an open book for feedback and we don't take into account the other person's humanity and the state of, state of the world they're in and their life is in and what they may be sensitive to and gravitate towards and really just try to like get on my, you know, um, my mantra of what am I looking for? What would be the best version of this? There's also a little bit of, I'm sure you all have had this experience where like the first time you watch something you wrote with an audience, it's like reading it for the first time again. You're like, oh man, there's that line. I don't love it as much now. <laughs> or, oh, that's yes. so much better than I thought, you know? I think it's the same thing when you click send, you're suddenly outside your body for the first time and you're and you're looking at it, you know, kind of for the first time as an outsider in your mind and you're going, no, the opening is too long. It takes too long. <laughs> you know, you immediately have a list of criticisms. So the first couple knows you're just going, yeah, fuck, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, you know, you're doing that. So it is this immediately sobering process of just clicking send. That's why so many writers that I work with, I'm just like, you have to get it out the door. You're robbing yourself of like, of the first viewing experience outside your own body. And you're just going to learn so much more than this like nitpicky moment you're having now. Bad draft first, all the way through the outline with not great dialogue, just to see if the bones of this thing even can stand up. Um, and so that, yeah, that's my first. And then I just, I try to just be patient and know that this might be weeks before they even get a, a look at it. And even then they may not immediately have time to get back and talk to you about it. Such great advice. Such, such great advice for our listeners. Um, my week, I'm sort of combo platter of the two of you. I am project that I wrote a decade ago has come back and it's come back alive and there, someone's paying me to write the second episode of this pilot that I wrote but I'm bringing my husband into it with me to because I knew why it wasn't getting greenlit because there is there is something wrong in this engine and he could see it and I couldn't see it I was just too blind to it but the more we go into fixing that engine the more defensive I'm getting because it's cracking into some sort of lava. We call it lava on the show. This kind of vulnerable, unconscious, it doesn't even have words. That thing that I put in there that I think trauma. is the reason. It's trauma. What we're Okay, it might about. be trauma. It could be a lot of things. Sometimes it's joyous lava. But whatever. I know the lava is the reason people were attracted to it. And it got set up four times and it got me the Captain Marvel job. I mean, it really did a lot for me. But to make it a show, I'm going to have to get some objectivity on that lava. Does that make sense? And I'm having a real push and pull with it. I'm that part of me that does not want me to deal with it just wants everybody to go away and just this is what it is. And I'm really I'm just struck. I'm in a struggle. I've never had this deep of a struggle with a project before in terms of not the craft, just 
when somebody says to you, well, well, why would why what why is that there? Why is this relationship in the show? My response was, because it is. <laughs> like, what's that? Like, what is that? What that you can't give that response. You're like, that's not a response. But this whatever this small ancient child part of me is just kind of digging her heels in and putting her hands on her hips and being like, I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, so I have to find some sort of process. Uh, uh, I know, Raphael, you, it seems like you are digging into things in your work that um, even just Oakland, but I would think that you're digging into things that are personal to you. Um any tips on uh, <laughs> on on uh, how you uh, bridge that kind of emotional response you can get when you're writing something and then getting notes about it and trying to get that clarity, something that's personal? It doesn't have to be autobiographical. I don't mean that. Yeah. This show is not autobiographical, but it's clearly hitting something. I think that's something that really came up for me when I, because, you know, my gateway drug into writing was poetry, which is like short, like short form performance poetry, sort of before it really became spoken word and became a little bit more of a mechanical performance art form when it was kind of like you'd write a thing and you just, you wouldn't even memorize it. You'd have the piece of paper and you'd go up and share it. And sometimes I was in front of an audience of a hundred people. Sometimes it was an audience of a thousand people, two thousand people. Um, as, as my career went on and, and I was sort of always really big on reading new work, um, and so it became this um, testing ground for um, for sort of raw first drafts of writing. And there is a thing that happens when you find an, a nugget of truth in a piece of writing. It just like it just makes you really uncomfortable. You get down to a you you say a one liner, and the thing about screenwriting is so much of it is like people not saying what they mean at all, sort of dancing around the issue. But poetry is about like digging into you say exactly what you mean at the right moment in the poem and setting it up properly. And so you finally write that really true line, that really like brutally honest sentence that is so uncomfortable that you would never start a, start a, a conversation with this. And then you create a poem around it that brings the audience in. So by the time you say that sentence, they're on your side and they love you for it. Um, and so I always go back to that with writing where I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm working on a script and I'm like, what's his deal or what's her deal? Like what, what is this poking at? And even if it's never going to be in the script, I'll just try to find that sentence or writing it on the side and go, Oh my God, he's so lonely. He's just lonely. And he fucking hates himself. Cause he, you know, had a bad relationship with his father and he took it out on everyone. And he's kind of selfish. And like you know, these things that you would never want people to know about people that you love or the way that you feel about yourself. You know, because especially now we're in like a moral purity moment of society where like everyone's really hiding their flaws publicly. But like television and film are those places where like humanity still gets to exist if we frame it right. You know, and ultimately that framing is the same way that we would want people to be framed about our flaws. So for me, it's like I want to write that really, really terrible thing that everyone has, <laughs> that every character has that is the truth about themselves that they hope no one will see. And then I like to just reverse engineer from there and go, how's that going to play out in this situation? Like that thing you were talking about, about like working on your own thing and being like, oh, I'm poking at the lava of myself a little bit in this script. Like, oh man, everyone has one. Everyone has one and is constantly dancing around it all the time. And that's such a fun thing to think about. Everyone in the room has a thing. And there's, it's, there's like four people who are safe in this conversation and two people who are dancing around their lava. And how's that going to play for everybody? Um, oh, I love that so much. That's great. It's like a bomb to my soul <laughs> <laughs> today. <laughs> my husband will be very happy too. By the way, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna re-enter the room a little nicer. But you know it, um, right? When all all the hair stands up on the back of your neck when somebody says something about a character and you get defensive or like, right. you know that a, a story should go left instead of right, but you know going left is gonna take you into a space you just don't want to fuck it. You don't want to make that movie. I don't want to make that show. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> or like, exactly. I don't want to watch it because it's like my life, and I don't want to do anything that close to my life, but you know, you know, that is the direction you have to go for it to stay honest. And that's a brutal crossroads because it's not as fun. You know, it's not the light heart. It's not to your point. Like you know, you'll watch some of your favorite directors and writers and interviews. And they're like, I put it in there. Cause I thought it was cool. And it's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> this, is the, this, is the, this is the post, you know, right. post-mortem breakdown. This is where you soft sell everything that was really, really hard. But the reality is, 
you know, that moment was was pivotal to it being your thing and not anyone else's thing. Mm. And you have to like, you have to find that otherwise somebody else can write the thing that you're writing. And if somebody else can write it, you don't need to do it, you know? Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13 is out. And you know, the question's going around, is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot and I wanna see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0, where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script. So without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or, you know, if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful. And what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am laying out a new project, and I want to card it. And I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool. So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraft.com slash products to get the new version with a discount code of ScreenFD for 25% off. You should check it out. That's ScreenFD. S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D. Everyone hear what he said. That's so important. And when I was an executive, because in my past life I was an executive, and I could tell in the read when they were should have gone left and gone mm. towards that lava gone, and they went the other direction and you can feel it in the read that the authenticity and the movement and the motive. And that's there's, what a, there's, I, a, there's a lack of self-awareness. There's just a little yes. like that you left a little on the table. Yes. You were unwilling to go the rest of the way to be raw in your work. And raw doesn't have to mean careless or reckless or like without structure, but you weren't ready to be the full version of yourself in this. And we can fucking tell. And raw doesn't even have to be tone. It might be funny as hell. And yet we're kind of, we can feel it in the laughter. We can feel it in the needing to laugh or whatever. Like it's not even tone. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. See, this is what I'm afraid of, you guys. This is what I'm struggling <laughs> with right now. Is that I don't even know what that nugget is. And I have to go run face first into a wall and bust through it to find the nugget yes. that makes the hairs on yeah. the back of my neck stand up so that I, like, I'm in the beginning of this journey. And I'm terrified. So thank you for really putting that all in a point for me. Now I'm even more scared. <laughs> no, but it's going to, it's such a relief. Yeah. I do know having done this, that when you get to the other side, yeah. it's a kind of wonderful elation that you, cause you've just been, well, then you know what it's honest. about when somebody there says, it what's is. it about? You can go, Oh, it's about this thing that I don't know yet. Which you so, didn't know when you started. Yes. So that, no. yeah. So it's I fair. started as a poet as well. And then I, when my professor said, you write really dramatically, you should write plays. So I was like, <laughs> okay. So I applied for an MFA program and I got in and I did that. How did you trans? And then I worked at Pixar and then I found three act structure because playwriting doesn't often teach you three act structure, yeah. oddly enough. Um, and then I found, uh, then I met Meg and I started writing film and TV. And uh, how did you transition from being you know, a poet, a performance artist into, you know, now you have a season two of a TV show. Yeah. Still transitioning. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a part of it that I always hold on to because I feel like it's what gives me my own, my own space in the world of screenwriting. I've also, you know, like I've, I've gone and hung out at Pixar and heard and watched them walk me through the process and what it's like to work there. And I'm like, Oh, I'm not there yet. Uh, that's, a crazy development process that I don't know. Yeah, look know at my face. My, I'm 24. I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if my ego can take it, you know? Like, it's so, it, it is so beautifully, singularly focused on a great story. And because of that, like, I know so much of it is about, like, the writer having to, like, both give all of them and also remove all of them simultaneously, which is so, yes. like, bravo for, for getting through it, especially on a thing like Inside Out, which is really about your feelings. <laughs> like, I know. And it's so funny because I've done this lava train with a lot of people at Pixar under a tremendous amount of stress. And yet here I am back. And just every time you come back, it's, it's the it's, same it's, burn. It's our it's, humanity. It, it's it's yeah. 
we we are compelled to you know for me the transition of, of to, to answer your question about like going from poetry to other mediums is like i was very fortunate that the artists that that mentored me when i was super super young in the scene i came up in didn't talk about poetry as this sort of singular art form but rather that like writing or trying to convey something um vulnerable and sincere about the human condition is the craft and that poetry was a was a, a medium just like music was a medium just like screenwriting and playwriting and doing theater and doing film and television are all just ways to kind of do the same thing. So I never really felt as though like, Oh, I had to just kind of make these big transitions. There were just different structural um, rules to how you go about it. And then there are these subcultures around them that honestly can be more confusing than helpful most of the time. Um, and so for me, it was really just early, early on, early in my twenties meeting, you know, Jess and Keith Calder who produced the show with us and produced the movie with us. Um, them giving me permission to start even thinking about myself as a screenwriter. I think that was just like too big of an idea for people from the Bay Area. Like no one made movies. No one made movies. That might as well be on Mars. Hollywood might as well be Mars. You know, and so the, the idea of even having the audacity to attempt it was the bigger hurdle. Then when you start getting into it and you see like, oh, a, a three-minute complete thing in front of an audience is the same as a 10-minute thing in front of an audience is the same as a 30-minute, as a 90-minute they all have to be paced appropriately. They all have to have a journey. They all have to like stimulate you at the right moments. And, and there's got to be a reason for watching it or for viewing it or for listening to it. Otherwise, when you leave, it wasn't worth it. And you're not going to have any repeat business. And you're not going to be able to build this narrative of yourself as a, as a storyteller. And I think sometimes these, these titles kind of be, become these confining archetypes where like, I feel like I can sometimes pick a screenwriter out of a crowd and a poet out of a crowd only because of the self-fulfilling prophecy of the idea they have about what that's supposed to be. Mm. Whereas when people are, you know, poets and storytellers in their own right and they're multi-medium writers and they've accepted that about themselves, there is a fluidity to the art form that's so beautiful. They're just great at like finding the beautiful thing about the human condition and then expressing it in a genre that is most appropriate or multi-genres that are most appropriate. But I don't know, you know, none of my favorite writers when I dig into them were a singular medium writer. Mm. They they have a, a medium that we know them for and that they were celebrated for and that's fine. But like some of my favorite songwriters were great poets, were great short story writers. Some of my favorite novelists were musicians. You know, it's, I don't know any artist who exists in a singular medium and that's the only way they express themselves. And so I, I, I don't know, the fluidity to me is, is like of, of, of the utmost importance. It's what's so beautiful about your TV show and the, and, and the, you know, the movie of course, but in terms of the television show, there's such a joy in uh, whether that fluidity is going to show us something more edgy or 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 complex complex or something beautiful. Like in the uh, the first episode of season two, um, it was such a joy. I'm not going to say I'm not going to give it away because I want you all to go watch it. But so fun! It was such a a wonderful surprise. Uh, what that fluidity uh, of storytelling, how you shifted that and used a a piece of that brought something in. I, I can want to give it away, but I just love that. I love that about the show that you, you're never quite sure what's going to be the next fluid piece of storytelling that you're going to bring in. Is there, do you, do you um, really chart those out? Is it very organic? How does that fluidity work in the show? They're totally charted out. I mean, I think the show is a particular exercise in artistic freedom that will probably, I'll probably never have that again. Um, you know, or, or maybe some, you know, 20, 30 years from now, if I'm lucky enough, there'll be another passion project that can be that way. But I think we had a unique opportunity because of the nature of the movie and, a, and a, you know, that that two months of gas you get after you have a good project where people will say yes to you or they ordinarily wouldn't, that they signed up for this absurdist show. Um, it doesn't work on paper. It's not a particularly intuitively marketable show. Um, if the closest shows to it are far more traditional. And so I think we know that we're writing a show for a bunch of artists. If other people watch it and love it, great. But like, I know every time you add a new discipline to a thing, you both invite more artsy people in and you alienate really traditional people. And that's totally fine because we didn't set out to make like a mass show. We set out to make a show that 
because they were giving us permission to do it for once in a blue moon, never gets to do this, that we should do it to the full, the full sort of extent of the, um, of the exercise. And so it was like, all right, we've got, usually a show like this has one convention. We've already slated two. Let's try, let's try it. Um, and so for us, the conventions are, uh, and I think in season three, we kind of have a third convention because we added a Henson creature. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, our, our conventions in terms of storytelling really are there's verse, there's direct adjusted camera verse. And there's, um, there's sort of a Greek chorus of regionally specific dance. Um, and the, the rules on the board for those, I think everyone, I think everyone has uh, different, different uh, sets of rules, but my set of rules for it. And I think these are the ones I impose on everyone because I get to be showrunner um, is dance um, functions when language fails um all of the characters mm. and when the when the sort of outstretched arm of the prison industrial complex is having a profound effect on the characters in a way that they may not be fully aware of mm. and so it's interstitial in season one and then it becomes sort of these bigger dance pieces and in season two it's like it's much more sparse but when it happens it's like this is happening because this moment is a consequence of their circumstance and they don't have the words to express it um, or they can't fully articulate it to themselves in that moment. So then we go into movement. And of course we use a regionally specific version of that movement. So I like, keep it in its place. And then verse. Um, I've always wanted to do direct address to camera with poems. I just, uh, no one else had really done it. I just wanted to see it happen. For me, it was important for like the culture of performance poetry uh, to have those pieces. Um, the rule for me is that um, I think it's fun to show artists in a show that are not pursuing their art. I think of Ashley as a poet who journals poems with no professional ambitions. And so I think of those poems as poems that she's writing to herself to try to articulate her, um, not only her mental state, but trying to um, endear mm. the reader to sympathize with her hard choices she has to make in this impossible situation of her life. And I always imagine that the audience is Sean when he's older um, so that he can better understand why his mother made the choices that she made when he was too young to understand what was going on. And so that's the rule for writing a lot of those pieces is the audience is a kid um, who's, who's, you know, fully grown now and who's trying to get a window into what it was like when he was seven and his dad went to prison. That's beautiful. So the, I was watching the, you know, I watched season one and I have to admit at the beginning, I was like, I didn't connect with the poetry and the music. It was because I'm not used to it. And then once I was like, oh, this is, this is theatrical and poetic and all the things that I rejected as a playwright, as I moved into screenwriting. So what yeah. you said <laughs> earlier about like, why, why do you have to follow these like roles? And so it felt like like by season two or episode two, I was like, oh, I can also give myself permission to play more with language because I love language and to find other visual forms to adventure in. And um, one of the things when I was watching by episode one, season two, I'm fully in it. I'm fully like into it, like looking forward to those pieces. So full of joy. There is this juxtaposition of like those joy and those moments with this profound loneliness of being surrounded by so many people, but being so alone that really struck me. So I was having so much fun with episode one of season two, like, oh, this is so great. So funny. But I, after I finished watching the episode, you know, as a mom, as a wife in complicated times, complicated everything, I felt so I related to it so much and that's not my personal experience at all. Right. But I just felt like I could see myself. And so thank you for that because I don't, I didn't, I didn't think I expected to relate to the show as much as I did, especially when I was watching first season of like, I don't know what's going on, you know, <laughs> but then allowing myself to sort of get into it, I felt really moved. And um, so I'm wondering how you get at that truth and that honesty, like what we talked about earlier, like what in your life, in your lava helps you get at, you know, she's a single mom, you know, like you're not a single mom, you know, like mm -hmm. how do you tell a story outside yourself, but put the truth into it? Yeah. Uh, to, just to speak to the first part of what you said, like that, that discomfort as a viewer was like a, kind of my, the thing that attracted me the most to the show is like, 
when we see a show like break the molds, our first reaction is like, oh, they're doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. it's like it's like seeing someone like playing a professional sport and just playing like they're like they're up to bat and they're holding the bat weird. Like, that's a weird way to hold the bat, you know, and we're we're so you realize like how indoctrinated into like a specific kind of storytelling we are. And we had a lot of people yeah. say that they were like, I don't get this. And then by episode five, they're like, you know. Oh, God, I'm crying at the dancers in the house because she has to tell Sean that her dad's yeah, in prison. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. it works. <laughs> Open up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, there's other ways to watch TV. Um, but I, I will say, and you're, and you're also to speak to you, you're, your ability as a storyteller, even though you might feel uncomfortable in the first couple episodes, I still trust you. I still oh, am hooked by the story. I still want to go to the next one. Oh, right. So, it's like because you're pushing us, but you're still being a storyteller and you're still keeping me in the lane. You still have structure. You're still, still character driven. All yeah, those things. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. I mean, I, I think the only the only credit I could give to that is like we really we, we run a ship on enthusiasm. And I think the idea that like if you're excited about it, other people can get excited about it. And you just have to find a way you just have to find a million entry points for them. And that's all we focus on. We don't get everybody, obviously, but like. I think we're just trying to build in. They can they can find a bit of themselves this way and find a bit of themselves this way. And you build that trust over time. And, you know, hopefully more often than not, people kind of go, all right, they're like my weird friends, but I love my weird friends. You know, they gotta <laughs> come along. Um, in terms of finding the way into the character, I mean, I, I you know, I feel a little bit like we're just kind of preaching to the choir here because it's all a bunch of people who know how to write character really well. Um, but, I mean, there's the first obvious one that like, it's a lot of family members and friends who are single parents. And so you have your proximity experience, right? Um, there's bringing people into the writer's room, obviously, who have even more experience. Either they, they have kids or they were raised by single parents. Um, and then obviously talking to people who've had incarcerated um, family members and and coming in there with all of your assumptions about what that experience is like and then really seeing what everyone keeps saying over and over again. But then you're just kind of like, you're digging down to that universal thing, which is like something happens to you that not enough people around you have experienced that you're just alone in it. Um, it feels a lot like a death where like even people who've experienced death cannot relate to you when somebody that close to you dies. You're just alone in the feeling. And everyone, even all the, there's half the people around you have been through an extreme painful death. And even those people don't say the right thing. It's just isolating. And then, you know, the imagine of like, and then you have a kid who you have to like save face for and and put on this positivity. And now you're dealing with your partner's parent and that's a whole dynamic. So a lot of these became these like micro dynamics that collectively we all had experience with. And you start putting those together and go, all right, well, now we have this great actor, Jasmine Stevens-Jones, who like plays really well as a bit of an introvert. She can give us so much without sort of, you know, trying to give her all this dialogue to articulate how she's feeling. Um, and so a lot of it, we just left open to interpret. That's the beautiful thing about poetry is you leave it open to interpretation. So when she does speak, it's still in metaphor. It's still in coded language. It's still in like emotionally charged words that I think are really, really inviting. And so less trying to go, hey, let's really accurately portray how this is. It was more, let's create a circumstance with a bunch of micro relationships that are all that we all collectively have a big understanding of. And put them all in one person's back because the feeling of being overwhelmed when you're trying to deal with something else is something that I think just a lot of people can relate to. Everyone's been in that circumstance, big or small. You know, you don't understand what I'm going through is probably the most relatable feeling <laughs> of the human experience ever, you know, because we don't almost no one has enough time to pay someone else the attention that their life deserves. And so you just intensify and intensify and intensify that. And everybody wants something from Ashley. Everybody needs her help. Everybody needs her time. Everyone needs her to, you know, even Trish is like stealing her clothes. Like what a petty thing to do when somebody's like on their heels, <laughs> you know? There's so much going on all the time. And really just making somebody who's who's trying to like hold on for dear life in season one is handling it well. And season two is falling apart. I think that we can all relate to It's like, Maybe you're in the other room going like, well, when my dad got sent to jail, but it's like when I fell apart, here's what mm -hmm. I did. Like, great. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Let's take that. When I, you know, but it's that thing we were talking about earlier, like, you know, 
dissolve it down. Keep going. What's the base code? What's the base emotion we're talking about? Yes, we haven't lived in people's experiences, but if we only wrote things based on the things we knew, every book would have one character. We can't do that. Like we have to put ourselves in other people's shoes. <laughs> but the but the challenge of of the writer is to go. What's the base code of this? Go down, down, down. What am I afraid of? What's the fear? What's the pain? What's the what's the loss? What is it? And once we can get down to that, the universal thing, then we're just pulling from there as writers and going, well, when I went through my version of that, it was this, it was this. Um, I think that's I all love that phrase, get to the base code. I'm going to use that. I'm going to put that up here on my Deal. wall. <laughs> get to the base code, fear, pain, loss, universal. Love it. Amazing. You're also directing. Yeah. <laughs> How is that? How is it to direct uh your own work and your own show how in terms of as a storyteller i'm sure there's lots of things you could teach us in the directing realm but um uh or both i mean how great it either? you know it's it's I, I don't know that every writer should direct i don't know that everyone has that ambition or like thinks of their stuff in terms of how they want to shoot i think because i came up shooting and became and came up at, at editing more than anything like i write thinking about the cut um and so while maybe it's not a perfect shot list in my head when I'm writing, I do know what at least what I think it should look like or what if I had the appropriate amount of time and budget and the actors showed up in their best form that day, what I would want. And so to a certain degree, it just simplifies the process for me to direct on something that I'm really, really invested in. Um, I think also like it's a hard show to have guest directors come on to. It just is. It's just a lot of, we're trying out a lot of stuff. There isn't a, There isn't a comp to like have worked on that would that would get you into it really easily and so we've had a few guest directors come on that did a great job and taught us a lot about our own show um but i think for me is my my ambitions of kind of sitting in that writer director role that i think people are are uh, pretty comfortable with sort of understanding somebody who wants to do those two things simultaneously um it just feels like a, a clear channel of creation that like i've spent a year going here's what I think the story is. And I have the skill set of like, I know what good framing is. I know what lens package we're on. I know how much time we can spend on this. I know whether or not this is going to cut to this or whether or not we need to go in for coverage. So if I have all that, I can either politely explain all this to a person who I've pulled into my midst, which just feels like just mean spirited to do at a certain point, or I could just get a little bit less sleep and and direct the episodes that I want. Um, and so we split the season in half. Jess Wu Calder did uh, two of the uh, two of the other episodes, and we had two other sort of guest directors come on and work. But I think what's been really great for me stepping into that role is it's fundamentally changed the way that I write scripts. Um, I'm a I love bitch. that. How? 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 Everyone has a different crutch, right? Like everyone, when you're writing, has like a thing that you do, even though you know you have to stop doing that. Um, and mine is I'm a habitual overwriter. I write more than the scene needs. I know it's going to get cut down. Um, I know it needs to go. And so the exercise is always like, can you write less to just save yourself time later? What scene direction is like for a reader reading a novel and which scene direction is actually useful for the table read and the production read and the, the actors when they're on set? Like, what does everyone actually need? And when you walk through that process, you realize like, oh man, I wrote this for the studio, but then that didn't need to be in the production draft. And when the actors got it, it confused them. And I've got all this stuff in here. I'm catering to too many people. And it changed the way that I went back and wrote scene direction every draft. Like once I got through one of the guards, I would go, all right, all that can go. That was for me. And that was for the network to understand what we were trying to do. Now the production crew is going to read this. They don't need all this shit. They need to know what's the look, what's the lighting going to be like? How big does the space need to be? What kind of props are in this room? You know, they need those. And the actors then don't need any of that shit either. They need like, what emotional state is this character in? What's the, you know? And so it it really made me understand that like those production drafts when you're getting into the process are not just an opportunity to like refine your dialogue, which is what we as writers want to do. It's like cut things and refine dialogue and make the scene better. That's great too. But also these are your chances for different people who are your co-conspirators on getting it out the other end to have the right information that they need to show up on set and execute on the scene that you've had in your head only. And so it started making, to make me change the way that I look at those drafts, one. Um, and two, knowing when the fucking scene is over. Just know when it's over. <laughs> it's For me, it's just like, it, it just, now it's starting to come more naturally after like working at it for a while. But like, it's so counterintuitive when you come from 
uh, when your early days of being an artist is eventually getting to say what you mean to end the scene right before the line that would give it all away. Um, and to just cut the scene off and trust that the audience is smart enough to read the characters and what's the, what's the unspoken moment that's happening. Um, and so again, it goes back to that thing of like writing the sentence that's like the core of the character's pain same thing with the scene right i think a lot of us do this we go like this scene's about this just making sure that like somebody told me this early on i'm sure we've all heard this a million times that like a great scene i don't think this is true all the time by the way but sometimes and often more often than not a great scene if if the framing of the scene is right and everything around it has been set up right you don't really need any of the dialogue a lot of it can happen just with the physicality now this is the meanest thing to say to a writer <laughs> but <laughs> but if you if you build from there right then you realize like what's the dialogue that enhances the unspoken things in the scene and just give us a sense of who these people are and what their insecurities are and what their worries are and that's really helped me do that kind of dance around the issue writing, which to me initially was the hardest kind of writing to do because it was counterintuitive for me. But now I think once you get people into a space and you go, oh man, I didn't realize that Trish was going to have to stand so close to Ashley. And like, oh, what does that do? I didn't think about the blocking. Like, oh, it's a small room. They're like really close together. That's uncomfortable. That affects the dialogue. Oh, it's a really loud space that really affects the dialogue or look what's going on in the background. Like that's distracting. People should be distracted in the conversation. And I think that aspect of directing, which is what I, I think all directors should have to at least follow or all, all writers should have to follow directors around for a bit to see the decisions that they make about their work, you know, later so that you know how to set that process up to like milk your, your brilliant script for all of the smart shit that you thought about while you were making it. So you don't leave anything on the floor. I think that's what directing has done for me is going, all right, how do I make sure that this script in every iteration of it is, is giving this team of 300 people, 200 people, everything that they need to be the best artists that they need to be in order to do their job really, really well. And we've all been on sets where like people are really not inspired and we've hopefully been on a set where everybody's really excited, you know, to do the thing. And that, to me, that's in the script. You either set them up to have fun and to dream into your world, or you didn't give them enough or you were too rigid. And now they're just trying to hit a target that they can't really see. Amazing. I love the phrase dream into your world. Mm. That's lovely. I would like everyone to dream into my world, but not yeah, too close. Right? Don't too get close. too close. Don't ask too many questions. I'll let you know. Yeah. What's that? It's that thing in Inception. It's like, well, don't open doors. Don't ask. Yeah. Don't start talking to the people in here. Yeah. And ask them how they feel about me. That's not okay. Yeah. No. So did you direct? You directed uh, season two, first episode, right? Yeah. The first two episodes. Yeah. And then later in the yeah. season, episode six and eight. Yeah. So there's a shot in that scene that I think does exactly what you're saying when they go to the little tiny door. I don't want to oh, yeah. away. the way it's framed with the effect and then how they go in and then what happens when they're in and the reveal of it and the tone of it, like the whole setup of that particular it's so weird. scene. <laughs> so awesome. weird, but so wonderful. And like just how they go up and how they're framed. And like, it really set me up to like, okay, this is going to be something else now. It it felt very much like, um, I don't know if this is going to be a compliment to you or not, but you know, the, um, I think this started in Oakland, the the version of the Nutcracker that's very like weird and you know, with the you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 any yeah. idea? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's the, the 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 reference for us was the door between Willy Wonka taking everyone from the hallway yes. after the elevator into the yes. room of candy. And totally. the, the awe of it, right? And it's like it's a direct rip. It's not like we're trying to be like like hide that at all the 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 switch of it was like well what if the way you know because the way in which chocolate is made is actually not that interesting um or well that's not true it's actually really interesting but it's not a magical world of you know a chocolate river and all this we we're like well what's another like sort of thing that's a really like, culturally important thing that we can kind of make this fantastical version of and i was like oh let's do how piñatas are made maybe is like it's also like a crazy factory and it's really fun and colorful <laughs> and there's artists people who you know put the candy in just for you and you know and make the animal just for you and and that just felt like a fun we hadn't done a lot of stuff 
in season one about like the Hispanic Latino identity in the show, really, because we don't we don't really heavily talk about the fact that Trish is like black, Mexican and white. Uh, and so this felt like a good invitation into that without hitting it too hard on the head. But yeah, going from one side of a door and having like the the dotted yellow shit that you see at every like, you know, pinata shop or hardware store. And the other side is these swirls going around tells you, right. And there's smoke going in. I think you can hear like somebody like yodeling <laughs> from the other side of the thing being like, there's something weird on the other side of this. But it also so- speaks to character that these are the two girls that would go in there, especially for, cause you know, I don't want to give things away, but in terms of how special she sees her friend and that she, of course, with you, I would have this kind of magical experience, right? Like when you have that friend that that, of course you're going to have magical experiences with you. Um, So it really also speaks to this relationship and the what's coming for this point of view to them and each other. Like it was all, it wasn't just to be absurd for absurd or, or, or beauty sake. It was also um, setting a lot of that code up that you're talking about in terms of experience. All that, yeah, all that, like, that we need to show that they, they yes, and each other in everything that they do. And when one of them says, what's through that tiny door? The other one goes, let's go look, you know, yes. just, just. Yeah. And then it's magical. Of course, with you, yeah. it's magical. Yeah. Right. And they're the only yeah. ones who saw it. And that's the great thing about long term friendships is like, you just had to be there. The, the, the summation of all of their joke, inner, inside jokes and friendship over the years made them go into that room and see a problem. And one of them says, I think I can fix it. And the other one goes, I think you can too. You know, it's a great, it's a perfect way to bond people together. And it's so delightful. It's awesome. It's it's this ridiculous scene. You know, one thing, Raphael, I'd love to ask you about, and it's diverting away from blind spotting a bit, but we have a ton of emerging writers who listen and, um, we talked about it. Your career's had a lot of different kind of chapters and chambers almost as you've explored different mediums. In particular, a lot of emerging writers ask the question about web series. And I know you created a web series before blind spotting. And I'd love to hear, if you don't mind, talking about that experience yep. and if and how it kind of parlayed your work into potentially getting blind spotting made or or didn't. I, I think I'd just be curious to hear you speak on it. Oh yeah. Um well look, I mean, so much of my career started on the internet. So sort of you know even my poetry really took off on like I, I got on tv but it wasn't until that show I, I ripped it off the show and put it on youtube that I started to have an audience and could tour around the country and around the world and and um a lot of my you know realizing that the internet was this big use for me as a as a writer and a performer that made me want to get really proficient in post-production and shooting and the adobe suite and all those things um, and so that was like my, there was this other quiet career I was having in just getting like, you know, professional training in, in all these programs and pirating them to death. I stole Adobe so many times uh, <laughs> from different people. And um, and then there was eventually a point where like the, the DSLRs came out and suddenly you could shoot kind of higher quality stuff online. And I think that's right around the time that short films started to kind of hit the Internet more and start making the, the circuit because just the sheer cost of them was easier um, I think when we went into it at first, we weren't thinking about it quite the right way. We were trying to show the totality of what we could do. So like we would write a script really fast and then go shoot it and color it right and mic it right and edit it right and get the music right and the title sequence. And I was like, you know, we were trying to scream, look how look how professional we are. Um, and it's kind of the wrong thing to scream uh, because there's already a bunch of people who do those jobs once you make it to that level what is actually needing to be showcased is kind of like the raw the raw talent and i say only raw in the sense of like have you have not been like brutalized by the industry yet <laughs> um, but but raw in the sense is that you know process you know about writing you know what a good story is and you know voice, what maybe actually, like voice the voice of the yeah, yeah the voice of the writer but that also that you're not all voice that your voice and you know the rules mm. even if you're breaking the rules there's some mastery of the medium and it's interesting to watch above all else so i think you know i i not you know there's a few short film stuff that i did but i also was like editing on everyone else's mm-hmm. i was still like when i moved to la i was freelancing on some of Issa Rae's early, like, short cool. short film, uh, episodic stuff. I was, like, editing in my house because they were just posting it on Craigslist. Who's Who wants to make 100 bucks and cut this thing? You know? And so there was a lot of chops being learned in the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, we eventually did a, a few different web series. One of them was, like, a, a really overproduced thing called The Away Team that was, like, really more for me and 
David and other people to like get to act because nobody was casting us. I get to write silly like sci-fi stuff. And I wanted to practice. I wanted to see how far I could push my skills as a, as an editor and as a shooter and as a sound designer. And so I think I was just kind of having fun. And, um, but eventually then we started doing another one that I think was purely, purely just, we didn't even write it. It was, it was me and David reenacting Calvin and Hobbes sketches as adults. Um, <laughs> And oh David just Yes, oh, I must see it. this. I must. It's, it's so popular. It's going to get taken down any second. <laughs> it was by far one of our most popular things on the internet. Um, in terms of like an episodic thing that no one should know about. Um, but it's just David in a big tiger striped fur coat and me in a striped shirt, you know, in my late 20s with like my hair spiked up and literally all we're doing is frame by frame copying the original comics and dialogue, <laughs> so but out loud and in black and white. And like the framing is exactly like the strip. And, <laughs> and it's, and, and I think it ends with like a, like a fun funk song and just, and then shows the original strip. And it's just this great exercise and just a good fucking idea. Like it's just a good idea. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much that it's displaying us as like great writers, but, but just taking an idea and completing it in, in, in its cheapest, simplest form, well. And as much as I love some of the other stuff we've done, that was the best exercise in like, don't mess up the idea, don't overcomplicate it. Mm. You know, do it in its simplest form because you're one, you're flipping an IP that people care about, which is what right. a lot of the industry is now. Right. And, but you're also giving it a new element um, of like seeing people sort of, you know, satirize it as adults. Uh, with this, you know, with this black dude with a big fro and a tiger stripe, you know, pimp coat on as Hobbs, which is like oddly perfect. Uh, <laughs> it's oddly that. perfect. And uh, and so I, I learned so much from just the way in which people gravitated towards it. One, because also it took some of the ego off of me as a writer. and was also just like, hey, sometimes you have to look at a thing objectively and go, I don't need to add to this. I don't need to like freak this a different way. Mm-hmm. I just need to like honor what it's telling me that it is. And we made like nine of them. They're 30 seconds long. Four. There's one that's just like me and David in a bed talking about monsters under the bed. And people are just like, what's great about this is this is two grown men being fucking adorable. Um, and it's like, great. Awesome. Aww. You know, and getting to act the way that we wanted to act. Um, and then it makes you look back at like how brilliant Bill Watterson was as a, as a comic strip yes. writer. thing for kids, but it was really for adults and for parents and um, and about the, you know, sort of dysfunctional parents and the way that that leaves kids alone and the way that they make you know, imaginary friends. And then I look at uh, the season two of our show and I go, yes, I was yeah, just about Sean to say, yep, there it is. Like, yeah. there absolutely. It is. I made a joke years ago that the thing that I loved about Calvin and Hobbes was like, Calvin was having like a psychological breakdown because his parents were like in desperate need of a divorce. They're doing nothing but fighting the whole comic strip. And so he invented a kid, he invented a, a stuffed animal friend to be his companion because he was left alone so much because his parents were dysfunctional. And the minute you put that lens on the, on the strip, you're like, yeah, this is a traumatized kid. You know? <laughs> so then we were thinking about Thisley for season two. We were I'm like, very upset now. I never, yeah, yeah. It it's going to really ruin the way that no, you know, it's so true though. I know it's so true, <laughs> but you know, and it doesn't make it any less fun or beautiful, but like the convention of an imaginary friend is, and this is a whole other thing we can get into with writing is like, it's an inherently sad premise. Those comic strips are wildly joyful and fun and beautiful mm-hmm. and about mm-hmm. friendship and they're about love and they're about kids with big thoughts you know and so for us it was like well we don't want Fizzly to be sad even though it's sort of a representation of like Sean's absent father and needing a protector it should be the cutest sweetest thing ever it's like yeah. there's nothing like seeing a little kid feel okay with his life when he's scared and when he's nervous and you realize like you haven't been paying attention to Sean all of season one because we're so much with Ashley, but like you just want him to be okay. And then suddenly there's this big fuzzy creature there hugging him and you go, I want one. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, want one too. for my everyday life. I want to come yeah. home and have some seven foot creature just laugh at my jokes and give me hugs and like cuddle with me on the couch. <laughs> <It'd be> amazing. <laughs> so much. Um, so much. Amazing. I, I, we love, I love it so much. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's- it's been so great having you here. Um, we always end our show with the same three questions. So if you'll indulge yeah. us just a little bit longer. Sure. Um, so our first question is, what brings you the most joy when it comes to your writing or work, creative work? Oh, um, what brings me the most joy? Um, I love when something... I love when something I thought was so important 
gets cut in the end. It makes me so happy when I was like, everything about this episode is leading to this monologue. <laughs> and then you realize you did so much good work that you don't even need it. That like, it was, it was, a, an, un, it was an unnecessary appendage and a crutch because you thought you needed to like vent a thing so perfectly. Mm. And it, it's, it's so nice when, for me as a writer, because my crutch is overwriting, when I've when I've worked hard enough to let something too literal go, it makes me feel like I've ascended to another level of writing where I'm like, all right, great. I've gotten to a place where the the writing I did around the thing was enough and everyone did their job. And so I didn't have to just announce it. Yeah. It's it's there. It's yeah. the, it's that weird balance in writing is like it it the tightrope is happening. Don't say anything else. such a skill like craft wise and psychologically emotionally like identity wise so yeah good for you you know there's like certain sports where you don't hit it your hardest you hit it the right amount like i think tennis is like that that you're not you know it's there's a perfect balance there's parts of writing that are like that where it's like don't don't go too hard just delicately put down the jenga piece on the top and step away from the thing, you know, but that's hard. It's not, you know, that's not intuitive. That's a, that's, that's technique. And I think anytime yeah. there's a reminder that you've gotten a little bit better, it's just like wildly satisfying, even if it was entirely subconscious or by accident. Yeah. It's amazing. All right. So the second question is what pisses you off about your work? All of it. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, um, I, I mean, yeah, all of it. I, writing is awful. <laughs> it's, an awful it's an awful experience. Uh, it's a terrible thing to feel compelled to do, to have to, to have to explain everything to yourself, to have to write, you know, obsessively all day. I write everything down. I have to write every little thought I, I articulate to myself. I have to write down like I'm some sort of like, I think I'm just so, so fucking smart. Like, everyone's going to find my phone after I die and go through it and be like, look at all these genius things you never put out. <laughs> like, I hate that I feel some uh, obsessive need to document everything um, and use none of it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just there endlessly. Um, I I feel like I'm trying to write myself into becoming a quiet person sometimes, and it's never going to happen. Oh I just God. desperately want to be a person who just shuts the fuck up finally at some point in life. Like, I hope I get to my death, but I'm just like, I said it all. <laughs> just die. <laughs> you know? Oh, I just uh, I realized what my life's purpose has been this whole time, which is yeah. to say it all. And so yeah, I, I, thought I, of all I don't of think it. I'll ever get there. No, of course not. But I want to be like, yeah, I thought of that too. Yeah, I had that thought. I wrote that down once too. You know, I just... I. <laughs> I'm like constantly trying to discover things for no particular purpose. Um, but you know, I think what I what I hate most about writing is is that there is no um there is no good draft. It's 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 always bad. It's it's good for a second and then it's bad forever. And finally at some point it stops being yours and you watch it after a bunch of other people have touched it and enough other people have touched it that it doesn't feel like yours and you can just watch it objectively, hopefully, Mm. and not hate it to death. Um, But as long as it's in your possession, it's always bad, except for like the five minutes of confidence that you have after you finish the draft. Which is right before you click send. Right before you click send, you're like, like, I'm ready. (laughs) And then click and then it's like, oh no. But it's, yeah, it's more like dragging yourself to the finish line than any like great accomplishment. And I think I've just had to learn to to accept the fact that like it is it is falling with style to quote a Pixar movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, we're endlessly plummeting to our deaths as writers and just hoping that like, we don't hit everything on the way down. <laughs> just, you know, it's so interesting that. talking to you, like the my feeling of the show is like there's a super high highs of, joy and fun and then these like very deep emotional truths and that's what this interview has been like with you right you're full of joy and fun and then like we're falling to our deaths all the time yeah, yeah, yeah. so like yeah. you all, your we, we voice hands on the way down that is your yeah. voice your that voice is, your is voice. just so coming through and true in the show so congratulations i'm a, like, I'm a on true that. Pessimistic, pessimistic optimist same like yes. i i yep. i think everything is fucked and i think we should just enjoy it and have as much fun as possible while we're here 
Um, we are our motto, me and David's motto together is energy up, expectations down, which I think really summarizes <laughs> that. It's like, we got to be all in, but like, n- nothing's going to happen. <laughs> just, <laughs> totally. Oh my God. Just, I'm writing that also on my wall. We got to be all in, but nothing's happening. Energy yeah. up, expectations <laughs> Nothing down. is real until it's real and it's never real. Uh, so whatever. And even then, <laughs> by the time it's real, you're too tired to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So true. You're just like, like oh my exhausted. God, can we just finish this already? Yeah. We yeah. just had like our two premieres. We were like, aren't you excited? I was like, I want to go to bed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm over this show. <laughs> I want to go do something else. It That's is so true. Yeah, by the time yeah. you've developed it all the way to it being as good as it is, you kind of hate it, and it's like you're ready oh, to move on. It's yeah. Oh my god, get me out of here! Get, it's like <laughs> it's like when, it's like Tony Stark when he's building the Iron Man suit in the cave. They're like, "What a great suit! Like, get me out of this cave!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so true. Um, this will be an interesting one, Raphael, because you're career started so young but one thing we act like to ask our writers is if you could go back and you know like have a coffee with your you know the version of yourself who's just about to start their artistic journey what would you tell what would you tell that Raphael? uh i would probably tell him uh your anger is not serving you uh i was a super angry teenager super super angry and it did fuel my art for a little while and it did help me um it did it did propel me through um, the frustration of, of trying to like feel seen in some way. Um, what the art scene did for me was give me permission to be less angry, to be more vulnerable in a, in a world. I think the outside of those artistic spaces that wasn't available to me. And so I do think like a certain amount of roughness was necessary. Um, but I think the, the, the unfortunate part of that roughness was it made me really cherish a, 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 a hostility uh, that is a part of my life that I took, that I think a lot of my art is about unpacking. And so on the one hand, I'm I'm grateful for it because I think it has shaped me in a lot of ways. But I do wish it had dictated less of my choices younger um, because I, I, I didn't afford myself things that a lot of my peers were allowed who, who didn't come from those circumstances or didn't come up in that environment. Um, but even the ones who did, like, I'm, I'm sure I, I stopped myself from wanting to go into theater really young, but David didn't. And he has all these amazing theater experiences that I think I really kept myself from. I think the way in which I engaged with music was really like, it was a time in, in music where I was particularly hostile. And like, it was about machismo and it was about these things that I think are interesting to dissect now, but ultimately are things that I'm always trying to like, it's the, it's the thing I think a lot of men are doing is like trying to unlearn all these things all the time. But I think at, at 14, 15, it was like so important to me um, to like, to, to be intellectually sound in the, in the writing that I was doing, but to be like emotionally very, very careful. And it was so strategic. Um, and now I think I'm finally, I'm getting to a place in my art where I'm okay with my art telling me something about myself um, not not me trying to say something very particular through my art. And so I really like now, to our point earlier about getting notes on a script, I like other smart people going, you know what you're going through right now <laughs> in your writing <laughs> is this. And me getting to sit with that and not be defensive in the same way I've been since I was a kid and instead go, oh God, uh, uh, that might be true. Let me go sit with that, you know? And also now help other writers go through that who I think were, were who came up the same way that I did and go, you know, I don't think there's a way for you to be a writer without fully embracing the truth about yourself. I just don't think it's possible. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can ease into the water, you know, and I, I certainly did. I, I baby steps all the way into that vulnerability. But the path is it's full vulnerability. And I think what we as writers sometimes cringe at with other writers is people who are not who have gotten too high up the ladder without quite enough vulnerability. And we go, the reason I can't engage with your art is you haven't, you haven't opened the next chapter of yourself. And so, and I can see it and you can't. And mm-hmm. so that's why I can't engage. I, I, I can't fully engage with this art. But the flip side of that is you, 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 you know, watch a movie or you read something or whatever it is. And, and that person has opened a door that you've like been toying with and they go like, here's what I figured out on the other side of the door. That is the best art you'll ever engage with. You know, those are those great scenes or those great moments in a, in a piece of writing that you're like, Oh my God, 
I have been trying to say that to myself for 10 years. And they just said it in a hug to this person while they were struggling, while they were being me and struggling in this moment. And I think that's the incredible debt that we have to writers is like that, that when we are struggling to find a piece of our humanity, writers give it to us. Right. And so I think for me, I would just want to go back to that younger me and like, just give him a bit of his humanity before he's ready for it. Just be like, Hey, you know, there's a, there's a much more fully fledged centered version of you down the road. And if you can try your best to not fight it, you'll start reaping the benefits sooner. But I think we're, we all kind of do that, right? We're like, mm-hmm. yeah. high school's not yeah. everything. You know, right. your, these friends are not going to be your friends forever. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. those people that don't like you don't know you. Yeah. You know, all these things that we we learn the painful lessons of through trial and error. Um, yeah, I guess that'd be my answer. That's great. What an incredible answer. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm yeah. just fully inspired. I was taking notes. Uh, <laughs> I, I never get to talk to writers, so I love this. Like, I don't have a writer's community, so this is like, these are the um, these are the fun moments of like, we're oh, so, yes, do what we do. We all do the same thing. We're <laughs> so privileged that you joined our writer's community yeah. today. Thank and you. It's, um, so cool. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Well, this was, this was an absolute joy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Raphael for joining us on today's show. And you can catch season two of Blind Spotting on Stars now. If you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group where the conversation about craft process and community continues. And come on over to our Patreon where we can we're kind of interacting with you guys much more directly one on one. Thank you to Jeff and Savannah for producing. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. 